and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Well-known director, radio host and former actress Crystal Kwok is back in Hong Kong in December to screen and talk about a documentary she spent five years putting together. It's partly about her own family, who ran grocery shops in a black neighborhood in Augusta, Georgia, in the segregated south of the United States, and also at the time of the race riots and civil rights movement of the 1960s. Crystal, who's also previously directed her own movies, this time has put together a documentary called Blurring the Color Line, Chinese in the Segregated South, which looks at the relationship between the Chinese grocers who set up shop in black communities at a time when drinking fountains were segregated, when schools were segregated, yet the position of these Chinese shop businesses and residents is seldom discussed. Crystal Kwok takes a camera crew around with her as she goes on buses into people's homes and interviews her own relatives. She tells the story of her grandmother Pearl, who only recently died, about how she escaped the confines of her family's expectations and the arranged marriage that awaited her. So there's personal family stories alongside memories from the larger Chinese and black communities and also uncomfortable but very much needed conversations about anti-black racism, white power and Chinese patriarchy, all seen through a woman's lens. Can I ask you a quick question? In the segregated South, buses were separated, black people in the back, white in the front. Where do you think the Asians sat? My grandma Pearl, she moved with her family to Augusta, Georgia in 1927, where they ran a grocery store in the black neighborhood. What did it mean to grow up Chinese in a black and white space? Now, when I was growing up, the expression, we had a Chinese grocery store in every corner. You know, the laws at that time were so limited, but not applying to, to the Chinese. Segregation was nothing more than a pseudo way of carrying on slavery. How do they end up in the black neighborhood? They are still people of color. Can only go so high. They were allowed to go to the predominantly white schools, whereas blacks were not allowed to go to the predominantly white schools. Well, it, it did start with a very personal approach. Uh, I was very close to my grandmother, and uh, for many years, she would tell me stories, uh, little insights into her life, which basically opened up my curiosity to what it was like to be Chinese growing up in a space that wasn't meant for non-black and white people. Like, there was no defining space for Asians. And it, it struck me because nobody ever talked about this. And and on one side, you know, my grandmother is very traditional, very Chinese. And at the same time, she had this really Southern drawl. And, you know, and then I think in, in Hong Kong, a lot of people may not be able to distinguish the nuances in accents, but she definitely had a Southern drawl, which amused my husband. You know, she would say things like, you know, when my husband was sick, I remember, and she would say, oh, sugar, you caught the bug. So there are these really kind of southern charms that came out of my grandmother. But more importantly, it's just her life. She, she ran away when she was about 17. And I'm thinking, okay, traditional Chinese woman runs away from the south where things were very black and white, where we didn't even know which water fountain they should drink from as an Asian person, right? Everything was white or black. And so where did she fit in? And for me, you might know from my past is I'm always kind of 
fascinated by the woman's angle. And from a woman's perspective, what did a Chinese woman do? What drove her away? And how did she navigate her life? And so that's how I embarked in this story. But as I kind of started digging and getting research for the context to the racial history of the South in the American South, I found that there was a a much larger story that needed to be told, and that is the race relations between the Chinese and the black community. Yes, so indeed. That's kind of how it started. Your documentary, Blurring the Color Line, does it covers both of those elements. The place of women just two generations back, well, from our generation, the confines of their lives. And as you say, living in the southern states, it's, it's a different kind of story about the Chinese in America as well. I mean, I always have thought of Chinese being San Francisco. And here they were moving down to Georgia just about 100 years ago, or just over 100 right. years ago. And that, that has a lot to do with how history is being told too, right? Even myself, you know, we learn uh, the Chinese immigrant history is always about the labor. The, the railroad workers and the, the cleaners or the restauranters, but we don't think about all the other spaces that the Chinese occupied throughout the world. So your great-grandfather decided to move the family from San Francisco down to Georgia to, in, in essence, uh, run grocery stores. This was a different class of people. They were not the laborers. This is my great-grandfather. They were merchants who came over to specifically try to tap into the capitalistic market, if you will, to try to move ahead. Your grandmother, born in 1922, she travels so with your great-grandfather down to Georgia, so Augusta, of that area. And so were they just in a Chinatown, or was there interaction with the black community and the white community? You're talking about Georgia. Yeah. There is no Chinatown. They went straight to the black neighborhood. At that time, the Chinese people mostly ended up living in the, China, in the black neighborhood because that's where they did their business with the black community. The white people used to make these commissaries and they offer, you know, basic supplies to the, the black community. And after they kind of fizzled out and went out, uh, there was no access for that. And so that's where the Chinese stepped in and they opened up these uh, merchant stores to offer supplies and basic groceries. Your documentary, you know, you start off really with the, the history of 100 years ago and uh, your grandmother, she's growing up to become a teenager in the grocery store in Georgia. So you have that, the Chinese family there, the interaction commercially with, uh, with the black community, but also uh, your grandmother and the great aunt trying to navigate being a teenage young girl and the norms of, of perhaps liking a white boy or, a, you know, a black right. boy and um, that not being acceptable within the family and, and uh, expected to then work in the store and then marry in an arranged marriage a nice young Chinese man. Right. But they, they, well, certainly your grandmother rebels against that. Another aspect, though, to your documentary is, of course, the riots in, in the 1960s and the burning of Chinese mm. grocery stores in that area. Yeah, there's a lot there. So let me just point out the the intimate stories first. I, I There was a very conscious effort on my part to focus on the coming of age stories of their private lives, like who, what type of person they dated. Obviously, because my obsession with sexuality and mm. relationships has always been kind of at the forefront of my obsession. But I really did think that was a way in to understanding this context of these different structures that controlled 
these women because it wasn't just being from a traditional family, right? They're like, yes, they had that traditional patriarchal family structure where they were kept in their place and then waiting to get married to somebody that the parents would arrange for them. But at the same time, then you have another layer of this racial structure, which puts an, a, a different layer of expectations on you. So why, why is it okay for them to secretly date white boys, but absolutely not acceptable to, you know, you, you don't even become friends with their black neighbors. So why is that the case, right? So what is what is this all about? Um, so I needed to go there. And oftentimes these were secret stories. I didn't know I had a relative who married a black man because nobody talked about her. It was kept a secret. So I had to dig in places where it was really buried deep. And those were the stories that to me informed me much more of the racial structures, uh, which led to what you were mentioning the protests, because it's not just the protests, it's not because we were stuck in the middle of the civil rights movement and we were in the way, so to speak. We were part of it, and we don't really understand our history, Chinese people being a part of it, in that we kind of played into these white adjacent game of, of moving up this social ladder and, and taking part in feeling accepted and whatever that took to mean accepted. You know, it's really quite complicated. Yes, and, and movable depending on what it was, seemingly. I have seen two elderly, um, they're lovely actually, they're sitting on a bench. Um, uh -huh. There's two elderly gentlemen, Chinese, who you, who you interview. Oh, yeah. my and grand uncles. Yeah. Ah, okay, and they, they, mm. they actually say that, you know, they went to a white school, but absolutely no communication with the other students. Right, so they were like the only token, you know, Asian student in their class, and they were not allowed to, to make, mingle with the white people. and and they don't even have black people in their schools, so that wasn't even an option. But when they get home, then they're in the black neighborhood, right? And my family, they were not allowed to play with their black neighbors. Whereas, to my research, I found some families, some Chinese families, where they allowed their families to, their children to play with the black neighbors, and it made a difference. And so this plays out in the riot, which I end up showing the destruction of some of the stores, including my family's store. Why did that happen, and why were there a couple of stores that were left untouched. So these are, to, to look at race relations, you have to look at how you treat people. I'm talking with yeah. director Crystal Kwok about her documentary, Blurring the Color Line. And you start off in the 1930s with uh, your grandmother, Pearl, who you knew for many years, and her sisters trying to navigate life uh, with a strict Chinese upbringing, but growing up in Georgia in a black neighborhood and uh, the restrictive life they lived under segregation in Augusta. In terms of, if we take your southern grandmother, I mean, she is a, she's such an interesting woman, Pearl. I mean, you have, yeah. and, and the fact that, I mean, I think from a heritage perspective, the fact that you knew her till very, you know, she only passed away recently. Mm. You have this rather racier, courageous side, really, where she, decides to go. She decides to live mm. her own life and she escapes the constraints of her family. And that must have been a very painful decision. What did she tell you about that? Well, 
you know, I was curious on the method she had mm. to, you know, what what gave her the means to run away, first of all. So she would tell me, and I put this in the film, I had it in the form of a reenactment, um, played by my daughter, by the way. Oh. Um, so she plays the young Pearl. And my grandmother would tell me that she used to, because there's the daughters, the sisters ran the store most of the times because the parents were either work, you know, my, the, her their mother was probably cooking or doing something else. So oftentimes when they were in the store and she, with my grandmother running it herself as a teenage girl, she would take money out of the cash register slowly, a little bit at a time. And I guess she had this plan and I don't know how long it took for her to, you know, accumulate enough that she thought was enough to run away. So she ended up going and moving back to San Francisco where she had an older sister who was already set up there and that's where she moved and then quickly found herself a husband because her mother said, you can't come home unless you're married because she already defied all rules. So she picked up my grandfather in a matter of two weeks and then got married so wow. she could go home. <laughs> yeah, you know, she had said like, okay, well, that she wanted to go home. But the sad thing is that her father passed away before she had a chance to see him. So when with running away, I think she had a lot, she kept to herself, you know, a lot of heartbreak of, of what she, the cost of her buying of her own freedom, you know, of not being able to say goodbye to her own father. I think also what what you bring out in your documentary and when you've talked about your grandmother before is, is that uh, she is from a traditional Chinese background, but she also is a Southern Belle in, in lots of ways. Um, well, her younger sister is even more of a Southern Belle because she really was born and bred there. And this other Southern Belle was another rebellious woman, if I may, uh, because she eloped. She saw that my grandmother had the gall to run away, and so the younger one, she, um, at 18, she, she eloped. But after eloping, her marriage didn't work out as well, and then she ended up leaving him, and she was a single mother of four children, oh, wow. okay. and she decided to do a, a secretarial work to support mm. herself through it, and, and then she ultimately found herself a, a, a second husband who was the love of her life. And so um, it's just interesting, these sister stories that, you know, what it again it, what it reveals there was one more sister that I didn't get a chance to put in the film as well her story was also she was married set up um, miserable life in in Georgia with her Chinese husband and she found out that he was fooling around with a white girl and actually had a baby with her so she decided to run away and she got on the bus and she the way my grand aunt told the story was that she got on the bus and the mother-in-law was looking for her so it's quite a dramatic scene where the mother-in-law is like at the bus stop looking desperately for where the heck you know, her daughter-in-law is trying to get her back home and my grandmother's sister she she kind of like slouched down in the bus so that she wouldn't see her as the bus crossed the mother-in-law and then that's how she left and she moved to San Francisco to uh, recreate her life <laughs> to run away from that miserable life gosh tell me about some of the people that you interviewed for the documentary I love to talk about the black community because I felt like they were so eager to share their stories. Uh, to me, most of the most engaging stories came from these several gentlemen who were errand boys at the grocery stores. So they had worked for the Chinese grocers when they were young and now they're in their, what, 60s, and they have many stories to tell. And it's not just about themselves, but one of them would remember, this was another grocery, it wasn't my, it wasn't my family store, but he remembered when his friend would come in the store, and he is kind of a fairer-skinned African-American boy, but the daughter of that store 
this Chinese girl who ran the store. You know, a lot of times the young kids work the stores. But he would remember how she just got flustered and got literally like turned beat red when this guy came in. So there were these infatuation, these really wonderful kind of just human stories of attraction that, that happened that nobody would ever know or record or think about it being anything important, right? And so, but to me, those were the best stories. I want to say, of course, one of the highlights is the fact that I learned that James Brown, <laughs> who everybody knows who James Brown is, is from the same town, Augusta. And he was, in fact, one of the errand boys at one of the Chinese grocery stores. So he had to make his living, you know, making a quick dollar or two by delivering groceries for these Chinese grocers. And it, it's just these connections we have are just amazing, really, the histories. Fridays were all you could eat day. Yeah, so one of the stores allowed their errand boys to eat whatever they could in the store mm. and not, not take it home. And, and he remembered that vividly because, you know, they really didn't have much to eat. And so he would work up to that day where he would really enjoy his food. Yeah, so food was a big part of the conversations. Those were a lot of highlights, too. And they were common. They were very connective. Both sides, the Chinese and the black side, would remember similar foods, which I think were really something. For example, there's this thing called pickled pig feet. Have you ever had that before, Anne-Marie? <laughs> Pickled pig feet? I, I think, I don't know if Chinese have that in... Say so what, trotters? Yes, yeah, so they're pickled and they come in these big jars. And both communities, one of their... Because I would always ask everyone what their favorite food was back then. And it's just so funny that they always say the pig's feet or the pickles. They would remember mm. the pickle jars in the on the counter. Um, or, or these cookies that the, the Chinese stores would always put in the front for like, you know, a penny. A cookie you know it was so cheap so these these kids would go in there and just eat and it was, it was part of their their sweetest memories growing up there in your documentary you travel on buses you're talking to people in the neighborhoods um, right. elderly chinese elderly yes. and, and middle-aged people from the black community so was this an uncomfortable documentary to make or you feel that it was it was one that was really necessary to get out there well it was definitely necessary i didn't feel the discomfort until <laughs> it's funny because you know since i've been starting to share the film different communities have different reactions and one festival i went to it was called the Orient Film Festival set in, they're based in Eugene, Oregon. This was an Asian American one, so their reaction was, wow, this was such a brave film. You're so brave. And I never thought of myself as brave. You know, I just thought this needed to be told. But what they're seeing is I'm putting us, as in our Chinese community out there, or me personally and my family, to be at the mercy of audience judging us for why or why not and how we are perceived as potentially racist. And so it's uncomfortable to that extent that I have to take responsibility for putting my family out there to suggest how and why we do have these um, discriminating attitudes. But my, I think the more important question is how do we come to have these attitudes, right? Because in Hong Kong, I saw it all the time when I was living there. You, you, you know, you, there are those viral videos of the MTRs where um, a black person got, sits down and then the, the Chinese passengers kind of scoot away. It, it's just so normalized. And part of what I saw was, um, yeah, you've got two, two ladies from yes. the black community and they're chatting to you. Can you tell me a bit more about them? 
Oh, they were one of my favorite interviews. That was Sheila and Lord. Sheila and Lord. They were old-time residents who had strong, striking, vivid memories of being a customer at the Chinese-run stores. They would talk over each other like they were so excited and so exuberant to want to share their connective memories of the store. So, you know, I had mentioned earlier things like pickles, and they, that's like the first thing that came out of their mouths, like pickles. <laughs> And, and cookies and things like that they would eat. And they also were telling us lively things like what else they sold at the stores. They sold stockings. They sold, they, they just, they, they were so funny. And it wasn't really so much the content of what they were speaking about, but it was their excitement. It was their engaging, strong memory of the stores that struck me because it wasn't the same with the other way around. So Sheila and Lord were just such wonderful characters. Yeah, they brought the past to life for me because it's like they remembered it like yesterday. And that's that's how strong of an impression and, and deep the connection was between the black neighbors and these local neighborhood stores run by Chinese. There, it was a deep connective history. How did you set about the documentary? Your, um, and I see, I see how you're followed onto buses. So you, you hired a, a camera crew? Yes. And for the bus, I had stumbled on that. It was kind of like, um, I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know how it was going to play out. And I went in there and I interviewed the people. And I just want to share one little story, and you can use it in whether you want or not. But I have several executive producers who kind of came on board as the project progressed. And one of them being Daniel Wu, who is everybody knows in Hong Kong as the super mega actor, but he is based in California. So he came on this project and highly believed in it. And he brought on two very high profile and very strong racial activists on board as my executive producers. One is Kamau Bell, who people in Hong Kong might not know of, but he's also very, very prominent in terms of his activism with racial issues. And the other one is Lisa Ling, who is one of the most visible and articulate uh, journalists, Asian-American journalists in the States right now. She's been working for CNN for many years and she has her own programs. So she, when we um, were looking at our rough cuts, the scene where I interviewed the older Chinese gentleman on the bus, I actually had to tune down what he had to say because at the time there's a there's a lot of tension between the Asian and African Americans during the Black Lives Matter movement. And she was afraid that if I had played what he said because he was basically saying that black people were not treated poorly it was just because they didn't have what it took to be treated properly which basically in essence was very very discriminating right so long story short is that uh, Lisa Ling asked me to cut that part out because there was that tension already and this was very um, complicated for me because I thought this was an important voice for him to express really what he felt and why why he felt he was discriminated you know why did he feel derogatory why did he feel negatively about the black position and where did it come from so anyway I kept it in but I had to mute it down so it was a tricky one so I had to deal in my process of editing is issues of of how things might have been treated and how people might have received it. And so speaking to the idea of this being a brave film is that yes, I'm putting the rats on the table as Daniel Wu, my producer would um, put it, that we are putting the ugly things out that yes, we are exposing that Chinese people are potentially uh, racist, which we know we are oftentimes, but we don't like to talk about it. And how are we racist? And what shapes and, and informs us of these attitudes that make us come across as racist, specifically anti-black racist 
racism. It was a real challenge to address these sensitive issues of racial discrimination. So that was just one story I had to share. You've talked previously about how your grandmother was a very can-do type person. You have soup recipes of hers, um, or you've learned mm -hmm. your ability to, to do soup through her, but she would also just take a Christmas tree, chop a length off oh. to make sure that, that it fitted into the stand for Christmas, <laughs> uh, which is, is a great story. So, um, But she would also have boxes of champagne ready to go for social occasions. Absolutely. With your documentary, are you going to be welcome at Christmas in your own family? <laughs> well, you know what? I was a little bit worried when I had my first um, premiere screening with my family coming in, and I had a, you know, I have a lawyer in the family, and she was the one who was really kind of calling the shots and seeing what was um, uh, was acceptable or not acceptable with the family. But um, to my comfort, they all were applauding at the end. They were very happy with the way I treated it and how I exposed these uncomfortable topics while addressing it with empathy, I hope. So I'm actually quite excited to bring this out to the world now because I have the support and reinforcement that it's not, not too shabby then um, that it, it, it makes you think about a, a thing or two in life. And that's what, you know, films are supposed to do. Film director Crystal Kwok talking there about her documentary Blurring the Colour Line, Chinese in the Segregated South, which will be screened in Hong Kong in December, including at the Hong Kong Art Centre on December the 13th. To finish off today's Hong Kong Heritage Programme, this is a feature about the reopening of the Khalsa Diwan Sikh Temple in Wan Chai from my RTHK news colleague Natalie Ching. The temple site has been completely redeveloped in a five-year project. The temple was founded in 1901 by the Sikh members of the British Army Regiment in Hong Kong. The arrival of the Guru Granth Sahib, the sacred text of the Sikh faith, brought with great fanfare by religious leaders to the newly renovated temple, marks the start of the ceremony to celebrate the rebirth of the Khalsa Diwan. The building, at the intersection of Stubbs Road and Queens Road East, has been at the heart of Sikh life in Hong Kong since it was first built in 1901. For the hundreds of faithful who gathered at the temple on Sunday, its reopening could not have come quickly enough, especially in light of the disruption that COVID-19 has caused. It was quite tough as a whole community. We weren't able to see each other. We weren't able to have certain festivals and stuff. And during those festivals, like we have the whole community come together. And I guess like it's a huge, it's a very nice feeling. It's a very home warming, like welcoming feeling. And then during the pandemic, it was quite difficult to have that feeling. And yeah, but then like now, I guess Hong Kong is lifting its restrictions and then this temple is ready. So I guess like it's a nice fresh start for the next um, couple of years. Gurdiv Singh Galib led the reconstruction efforts. He says the temple isn't just a religious facility. It's very much part of the social life of Hong Kong's 15,000 odd Sikhs. In the old temple, uh, capacity was only around 400 people in the hall. So now we have doubled it. Whenever there is a festival or uh, some wedding celebrations, more people can come. Now we have the more space for them. A key component of the temple is the langa, a community kitchen that offers free food to anyone who wants it. The dining hall has now doubled in size and can serve around 5,000 free meals a week. The temple even offers 15 days of free lodging to newcomers to Hong Kong and is also looking to start offering free medical consultations three days a week. 
already we have two or three volunteer doctors. They are Indians, so they want to give the service free of charge. Visitors are also welcome to join a variety of classes on offer in the temple's new library and digital classroom, including Cantonese classes for the first time. The hope is that this could help enhance a sense of belonging among new migrants. We also have rooms for tutorial classes, so we are going to prepare classes for the like before the DESC exam. We will hire some tutors, so invite the students to help them, give them tuition free of them. And we are also going to start the Chinese speaking classes or any other classes whenever there is a demand, like martial art classes. The practical role of the Khalsa Diwan aside, Mr. Singh says he hopes the reconstruction creates an unmistakable symbol for the Singh faith in the SAR. Now it's a nice building, so everybody passes by this building. So the, he will ask the question, whose building is this? Everybody, the question, answer will come that it's a Sikh temple. So people know that this is a symbol, this is a Sikh temple. It seems like it's working. Grace was walking by and couldn't help but take a closer look. At first sight, I think this building is very pretty, just from an architectural perspective. And it gives me wonder uh, what it is and what culture it holds. The massive reconstruction project was made necessary after cracks were discovered at the old temple in 2013. And authorities deemed the structure unsafe. But the community pulled together and came up with over $230 million in donations to fund the project. Now, the rebuilt four-story structure offers some 76,000 square feet of space and looks set to continue serving the community for decades to come. Thank you to my RTHK colleague Natalie Ching for that news feature on the reopening of the Khalsa Diwan Temple in Wan Chai. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.